Welcome to the JMD podcast, the companion podcast to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease. We've been churning out episodes every fortnight for the last three years, so I hope you know the score by now. I welcome recent authors, all experts in their fields, to discuss their publications and add perhaps a little colour to the sometimes too formal world of medical publishing. We've a huge back catalogue and an enticing future schedule, so be sure to hit subscribe, but not before this latest episode on comorbidity, cancer and mortality in acute porphyria. Hello there and welcome to another Porphyria podcast. This will be our fourth long form podcast on the topic and it's a testament to the size of this field that we're still covering new ground. So we've already discussed key terms and definitions, diagnosis, quality of life outcomes and also pregnancy in Porphyria. But this episode will have a slightly different outlook as we focus on comorbidity, cancer and mortality. And I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Matthias Lissing of the Hepatology Division of Karolinska University Hospital in Sweden to discuss his recent work around these topics. Uh, Matthias, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, James. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're discussing two of your group's papers today, um, Risk for Incident Comorbidities, Non-Hepatic Cancer and Mortality in Acute Hepatic Porphyria, a matched cohort study in 1,244 individuals, and the more recently published Porphyrin Precursors and Risk of Primary Liver Cancer in Acute Intermittent Porphyria, a case control study of 188 patients. Now, these are all based on data from the Swedish Porphyria Registry. Is that the largest Porphyria Registry in the world? I'm not sure, actually. Um, So there are eight different forms of Porphyria, and my research is mainly focused on the acute Porphyrias, when within that group there are three different diseases. And Sweden happens to have the world's highest prevalence of one of these acute porphyrias. So based on that and the fact that all the patients' testing is centralized in one center and all patients with a porphyria diagnosis are entered into the register, I think that we have the largest cohort of acute porphyrias. But there are other forms. There are the cutaneous porphyrias, and a few of them are also quite common. So I guess that there are centers that have large registers based on other types of porphyrias. I mean, obviously, registers are so important in rare disease. It's quite a treat to have one that's so comprehensive. Yes, and, and this was started in the 1970s, so it includes generations of patients. And there is also a nice link to all the lab tests and to genetic data as well. So it's a fabulous register it's little wonder we keep speaking to Swedish doctors about porphyria then, I guess. Yes. Um, so our previous podcasts have discussed some of the diagnostic dilemmas in porphyrias and the impact of the main feature of the condition, the pain. But today we're talking comorbidities, and here it's especially important to highlight the metabolic features of the disease. We've heard before that it's all about heme, but what do I need to know about this to understand what comes next? So as I mentioned before, there are eight different types of porphyrias, and three of them are called acute porphyrias, and previously were called acute hepatic porphyrias, since the liver is the main organ involved in the overproduction of metabolites. So the patients with these diseases have a genetic defect that causes decreased function in one of the enzyme steps in the heme synthesis pathway. So when something triggers an upgrade in the first step, say porphyrinogenic drug or fasting or other diseases, that will cause an increase in the first step. And then depending on what step is impaired further down the pathway, they will have an increase of different metabolites. And in the acute porphyrias, the first two metabolites are accumulating and they are called aminolevinic acid, ALA, 
and porphyrobilinogen PBG. So these two are increased in the acute attacks that are typical for these diseases, but they often remain increased for years after an attack. And there are lots of differences in, in these diseases. So the mutations are actually quite common with them. Um, we know from, from studies from blood donors and genetic databases that approximately one in 1600 have a potentially a pathogenic mutation, but the clinical penetrance is very low, about 1%. So there are a lot of patients with a disease-causing mutation with no symptoms and no biochemistry increase. And then there are some patients who have increased metabolites but never develop any symptoms. And then there are the more typical patients with occasional symptoms and increased metabolites. I think when we spoke with Professor Sver Svanberg, he was discussing that difficulty of how you how you define these different patients. And obviously, there's always that risk they'll move between groups over time as well. So if we come to the most recent paper first, that's the one on primary liver cancer in acute intermittent porphyria. Why do these patients get liver cancer? That's an excellent question, actually. It was initially based on a clinical observation from the northern parts of Sweden, where we have a high prevalence of acute intermittent porphyria, the most common type of acute porphyria. So in 1984, the first paper was published, and they looked at the 200 or so patients with acute intermittent porphyria and found that I think 11 of them had developed primary liver cancer. After that, several similar cohort studies have confirmed the same findings. So we know from epidemiology that there is a strong association to mainly acute intermittent porphyria, but also to the more rare forms, uh, variegate porphyria and hereditary coproporphyria. So there is a strong epidemiological connection, but we know very little about why. There are a lot of hypotheses, but the scientific evidence is, is quite scarce, I would say. I think if we look at possible mechanisms, most researchers think that ALA, the first metabolite, is probably a key mediator in this process. So amino lebulinic acid is a quite a small molecule. And in lab studies, we have seen that it is cytotoxic. It can cause uh, oxidative stress and also DNA damage. And we also know from another rare metabolic disease, tyrosinemia type 1, that these patients, if untreated, have a very high uh, level of ALA and also a very high risk of developing primary liver cancer at quite young age. So there is a lot of support for the theory that ALA is the key mediator to cancer development in the liver. And within this paper, obviously, you were looking at a case-controlled study. What were you specifically looking at there? Yeah, so from previous research, there is very little knowledge about the connection between these porphyrin precursors, the, the metabolites, and the future risk of developing liver cancer. We know that there is a connection to clinical activity. So, so patients with acute attacks seem to have a higher risk. But most studies did not include or included very little data on previous ALA and, and PBG. So what we did was we took patients from another study with a confirmed uh, acute intermittent porphyria diagnosis who had developed liver cancer. And we went back to the register and took all the data on their previous biochemistry and then compared that to a matched population of patients with AIP who did not develop liver cancer. And we compared the patterns over their whole life. 
with the exception of the year before the cancer diagnosis, since cancer can sometimes trigger increased activity, biochemical activity. We included 48 patients with liver cancer and 140 patients who did not develop liver cancer. And there are a few problems with this study. So um, there is a long time span between the period when you're usually biochemically and clinically active. That is most common in the 20s to 40s. Uh, aged 20 to 40, and uh, I think the median age, most patients develop cancer is around 70 years. So lab data is often decades before the outcome cancer. And that, that is a problem, even if we have many, many years of data in the in the register. And with what you see from all of this, obviously it gives you more insights around precursors. And you've mentioned already that thinking about ALA and whether that is linked with this. Did the data you gathered from this add to what you suspected or has it changed how you think? I would say that we knew that there was a possible connection, but now we have a little bit more details on something. So previously we have mainly looked at the connection to cofibrillinogen PBG because that is the most common clinically used diagnostic tool. So what we know now is that there is a clear statistical association between elevated both ALA and PBG and liver cancer. So that is now kind of established. The other thing is that we could identify a low-risk group, and that is always nice. So we can see that patients who have the genetic defect and the diagnosis but never have elevated ALA or PBG have a very low risk of developing liver cancer. So those probably do not need to to worry about developing liver cancer. On the other hand, it would also have been nice to identify a high-risk group, but that was not so easy. So patients with very high levels at some times, we cannot see a linear association to the cancer risk. But we found a pattern that patients who do not develop liver cancer have a trend of decreasing porphyrin precursor levels over age. So after age 50, 60, the ALA and PBG levels tend to decline, while patients who develop liver cancer actually have a trend to increasing levels. So that might be an indicator of uh, increased risk if we see that in a patient. So this kind of implies that we probably should be better at regular testing also in asymptomatic individuals that are in a clinically very inactive phase. You mentioned that group of patients who were biochemically positive, but often without clinical manifestations. And and presumably those are still at high risk for liver cancer, irrespective of not having acute exacerbations. Or I assume you didn't see a correlation between acute attacks and liver cancer. It is about biochemistry liver cancer that you're talking about. Yes. In, in this study, we, we actually have no association to clinical symptoms. But we know from another study that patients who have been hospitalized for their porphyria, which is an indicator of clinical symptoms, have a higher risk compared to those who have not been hospitalized. And most previous studies also indicate that uh, manifest disease have a higher risk compared to latent disease. But there is a long time span. So often these patients have one or two attacks, maybe in their 20s or 30s, and then a very quiet period for decades. And that also means that they are sometimes lost and don't go to any follow-up. And I think that with the quite high risk of primary liver cancer that these patients have, it's important to consider some form of surveillance to identify liver cancers at an early stage when there are still good treatment options. 
So it's an important message for clinicians caring for patients with porphyria, but obviously also for porphyria patients who perhaps are hoping to put their disease behind them a little bit. Yes, exactly. So that's liver cancer. The other paper was from last year, and it looked at other comorbidities, non-hepatic cancers, and also mortality. I mean, specifically, which conditions and cancers are we talking about? Quite a lot, actually. We, it's quite well established that patients with acute porphyria have an increased risk of liver cancer, as we mentioned, hypertension, and chronic kidney disease. That is well known, but there are also some studies indicating that there might be a generally increased risk of cancer. Several papers have indicated that there is um, different types of cancers, so breast cancer, uterus cancer, kidney cancer has been mentioned as possible, but most studies have been too small to give a more valid assessment of the risk. That is one. The other is that with the combination of high risk of hypertension and chronic kidney disease, one might think that there could be a higher risk of cardiovascular disease in general, since these are important risk factors. But that has actually not been studied as far as I know. Um, there is also an association to psychiatric symptoms and psychiatric diseases. Smaller studies have indicated a higher risk of uh, bipolar disease, and even psychosis, and there was an old study indicating that suicide was quite common in these patients, possibly due to the symptoms. And also opioid dependency due to pain management problems have been kind of indicated in some studies. So we wanted to do a large cohort study to see if we could confirm or refute some of these previous speculations or hypotheses. Okay. And this study once again drew on your really fabulous registry. So what observations did you make? Yeah, so if we start with non-hepatic cancers, we could see that there is no association between cancer in general and acute porphyria. And that is, I think, nice to know for these patients. We looked at each specific cancer type also and found no association to any of the specific types, with one exception, and that is kidney cancer, a rare type of malignancy. And we found that patients with acute porphyria have an approximately four-fold increase in kidney cancer risk. The absolute risk is still quite low, and this is confirmed in a few previous small studies, very low numbers. That appears to be reasonable since these patients also have a kidney affection from the porphyrin precursors. If we move to cardiovascular disease, we could see that despite the fact that these patients have hypertension, it's quite common, and chronic kidney disease, no increased risk of most cardiovascular complications. One small exception there, patients with a history of elevated porphyrin precursors have a slightly increased risk of um, cerebral hemorrhage. But apart from that, no excess risk of myocardial infarction, heart failure, and so on. And the third we looked at was the uh, psychiatric diseases. And pretty similar, there is no significant association to psychosis, bipolar disease, mood disorders, suicide, or addiction diseases. Overall, there is an association to psychiatric diagnosis in general but it is quite small and probably relates more to psychiatric symptoms that are common during attacks than uh, actual specific psychiatric diseases. 
to by and large that's um reasonably encouraging data yeah i think so actually and also it sort of takes away a lot of thoughts and speculations that might have been uh, involved previously and and maybe a fear for other types of cancer that we can now pretty much rule out with these more robust data I mean, that kind of myth busting is always useful when you've got small studies that have given you sort of cause for concern. I mean, ultimately, knowledge like this can inform surveillance decisions, which is obviously especially important around cancer. This might seem really naive, but is it just a case that this informs surveillance or could we see new treatments ultimately affecting some of these precursors and and lowering risk? Now and for the foreseeable future, I think that the most important aspect of this is to consider surveillance for these patients. So if we go back 40 or 50 years, the main problem was, was actually mortality during acute attacks. A lot of patients died from acute attacks. That has been very much improved. And now it's very rare that patients die from an acute attack. But over the past two or three decades, more focus have been on prevention and symptom relief from the acute attacks. And now we actually have quite good treatments for for that also. So I think that more of the focus is shifting towards prevention of long-term complications. And now we have, since five years, a new drug that actually lowers the porphyrin precursors, the givociron, which is a, a new and very promising treatment. But I think that it will not be affecting the cancer risk for the patients who are now and for the coming 10 and even 20 years, actually. But I guess that if we see an association between porphyrin precursor levels and cancer risk, it's quite likely that in the future, with better treatment and lower porphyrin precursor levels, the, the cancer risk will uh, decrease. I think so. Well, that's always nice to finish a podcast slightly on a high because most of the time I just finish podcasts talking about treatments that aren't available and won't be for years so it's nice to talk about a, a treatment that's on the market yes um and for people who are still listening at this stage what's your take-home message from all of this my highlight from this would be that in the different centers and countries around the world we, we need to have good regimens for surveillance because this is still such a rare disease that it is not mentioned in the guidelines for surveillance of primary liver cancer yet so we rely on national or center-specific guidelines. And in quite a lot of countries, actually, I had a look at the British Porphyria Association, quite a quick look, but I could not find a specific recommendation for ultrasound surveillance for these patients. So I think that that is something that we should at least consider and, and, and do for these patients, because I think that that can save lives. Which is so important. I'm glad you've highlighted it. I, you know, I want to say with this is an international podcast, just because you've got a British host, we don't need to pick on us. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. If you'd like to find um, either of Matthias's papers, you can click on the links in the podcast description, or you can go to the general web pages. And if you search for Dr. Lissing, you'll find those papers. All that remains is me to say, Matthias, thank you once again for your time this morning. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.